Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about Krzysztof Kieślowski's 1993 film, Three Colors Blue. It's the first film in his Three Colors trilogy, which is made up of three films, and each one is named after a color in the French flag. There's blue, white, and then red. And each film explores a different value of the French motto of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Three Colors Blue explores liberty. It's about a woman named Julie Vignon, played by Juliette Binoche, who loses her husband and daughter in a tragic car accident. Julie's husband, Patrice, was a composer, and she works on finishing one of his important compositions. Much of the film deals with Julie's grief over the enormous loss that she has suffered. Her reaction to that loss is to try to forget her husband and child and to create a new life with no attachments to memory or to the past, but she gradually comes to learn that this is not possible. In this episode, I talk about the devastating loss of my father when I was only a teenager and about how I have struggled with grief for well over a decade now. I discuss why this film resonates with me so much and I also explore themes of mourning, memory, the past, and much more. This is a deeply personal episode and there are spoilers because I go into every aspect of this film. It's probably my favorite film of the trilogy and it's just a part of me. I go into everything about it, I dissect certain scenes, and I also give you behind the scenes information about how it was made. I give you quotes by Kishlovsky. I give you everything. I put a lot of my heart and emotions into this episode. So I hope that you'll listen and I hope that you find some meaning in it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis and you can access rewards and extras like merchandise and bonus episodes. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level you get a shout out on each episode so I love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons Eddie, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for your continued support. If financial support is not an option for you, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it on a future episode of the podcast. And please give me five stars. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films. Word of mouth is really important because the podcast is so personal. I really feel like the only way other people or other cinephiles are going to find it is through that word of mouth. So if you have a cinephile friend or of a friend that loves film and you think that they might connect to the episodes, definitely let them know about it. Or you can just interact with me in a positive way on social media. I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So I won't 
talk anymore. I am excited to share this episode with you and to share all of my thoughts and feelings about Three Colors Blue. It's a very intense and emotional film for me. Probably a defining film in my life as well because it just, I connect to it in such a deep way. So I won't go on any longer. Here is my episode about Three Colors Blue. be honest, even though I chose to talk about this film, once I started re-watching it for the podcast and to do this episode, I honestly started to panic. <laughs> I was like, how am I going to talk about this film? I've said on many episodes that Krzysztof Kieślowski is my favorite director. At this time in my life, he is my absolute favorite. And it is because of the emotional resonance of his work because I've had some of my most intense experiences with his films. This is probably like the third time that I've seen Three Colors Blue. But when I started to rewatch it and realized what I had done to myself, where I've I've made myself do an episode about this, so I'm going to have to talk about it, I really started to panic and I thought, no, there's no way. I find it really hard to talk about his work. Having such an intense emotional experience with something like Blue makes it even harder. Because I do think that cinema in some ways can transcend language or transcend words because it is visual. And so just seeing an image can make you feel things. Even though you may not hear the actor saying anything, there may not be words attached to it. So sometimes when I'm doing the podcast, I really want to talk about certain films, but it can be arduous because it's like, how do you put feelings into words? How do you put something intangible into language? And that can be a really difficult thing to do. So I did have a moment of panic, but I just told myself, I'm going to share my feelings. I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be authentic and true to who I am and what I feel about this film and what it made me think about and the things that it conjured for me and so much. I apologize if this episode does get long. I have to go deeply into this film. There's no other way around it. Some films I can just talk about certain themes or I can kind of get away with not really going into the nitty gritty of the film. But I think with something like Blue, if I want to honor it, with this episode, I have to go very deeply into it, down into like granular detail and into scenes. And so that is going to be the structure of this episode, the way I envision it. Some episodes I go by like themes and then talk about various things. And then some episodes I will go scene by scene through a film pretty much. And that's what I feel like I have to do with Blue. And if it gets as long as it gets but I have to get this out of my system. I have to talk about this film. It means that much to me, and this is going to be a very personal, a very raw episode. If you're a long-time listener, you should be used to that, and you should be prepared for it, but if you're a new listener and you've never heard me before, get ready. (laughs) 
this is going to be intense. Like I can already feel it. I want to set the scene for you and give you some context for why I specifically chose this film at this specific time and what's going on in my life as I record the episode because that's really important, I think. Because the this podcast is about me. It's about my life, my experiences, my feelings. But of course, it's also about these films and the relationship that I have to these different films. So I am recording this episode about maybe two weeks after the the 13th anniversary of my father's death. So it just came in May and I'm recording this in June 2019. And longtime listeners, you know that I talk about his death constantly almost. There's, there's few episodes where it does not come up. I do talk about him a great deal. He died when I was 16 years old. He died in 2006. He was only 45. His death was unexpected, even though for a few years he had struggled with health issues. His health issues really started when I was around 13 years old, and then he ended up dying when I was 16, a few months before I turned 17. It was a shattering and devastating experience for me. I go really deeply into his loss in quite a few episodes. One in particular is about Jonathan Glazer's 2004 film Birth. So if you'd like to know a bit more about it, maybe listen to that episode as well. But I'm going to go really deep into it in this episode as well. It was so traumatic to me, uh, his death, that I still grapple with it to this day. And I'm almost 30 years old. Every year... When that anniversary comes around, it is paralyzing for me almost. Like my body remembers the pain of it. And I'm someone who, for me, grief did not end at all. Like I know some people, they'll grieve for a few months and then they'll move on. I need you to understand for you to really get why this film moved me, why it's important to me. I need you to understand that I still grieve and that grief is a permanent part of my life. And then I'm like in perpetual mourning for my father. He was my best friend. We were profoundly close because of the health issues that he struggled with in the last few years of his life. We became really close. Him, my mom and me, we became like this unit. Like we used to call ourselves the Three Musketeers. I just remembered that. I haven't thought about that in so long, but we did. We would call ourselves the Three Musketeers because I was an only child, and we didn't have a lot of family that was really there for us. We didn't have a support system, and uh, his health issues made it so that we were financially struggling a lot. He was actually on disability, on government benefits um, because of it, and so we struggled a lot financially, and so It was really just the three of us, and we were very isolated and very much on our own, but we really became this powerful unit, and he was just my best friend, and I was so close to him. I didn't have a lot of friends as a kid. I still don't have a lot of friends, really. I have no friends. I just have my mom, really. His death was incomprehensible to me when it happened. I could not cope with it. I just still grapple with it. I still struggle with it. It's been 13 years, but for me, it's like it was yesterday. I do think that I have PTSD as a result of his death. I think that it just completely broke me. I feel like a broken person 
after he died, my mental health really deteriorated. I had terrible anxiety and depression, and I also had agoraphobia, where I had trouble leaving the house, and I still struggle with all of those things to this day, and I also struggle with physical health issues as well. So his death was like catastrophic and cataclysmic for me. It represented not not just the death of this person, but the death of me, the death of my childhood, the death of everything, really. And it brought death into my life. And I think when you're a child, when you're a teenager, to have to confront such a serious thing at an early age is destabilizing and shattering. And we didn't have a lot of money, so I didn't have access to any kind of help or therapy for my for my mental health issues, and I still don't. I, I live as a working class person without health insurance. It's just not possible for me. And so that is why cinema and art, other forms of art too, I really love literature as well. That's why art is so important in my life, is that it's survival for me. It's what gets me through the day sometimes. And it's what keeps me connected to life and keeps me alive. So I know I'm going into this a lot, but some of you may be new listeners and you may not know the the full depth of what happened to me and you may not understand. You know, I think some people would hear 13 years and they would think, well, you should be okay now. You know, that was over a decade ago and I just need you to understand that for me it hasn't really been a decade. Like, I don't feel that in my body. For me, it was yesterday. It was it's still very raw for me because I loved him. I loved him deeply and he loved me and he was a wonderful father. And I don't have a lot of people that love me, you know, the way that he did and love me unconditionally. And it was him and it was my mom. That's all I had. And I lost half, I lost half of that. So it's really hard for me. And so that anniversary comes around every year and it just, I have like a breakdown. I can't cope with it. And then his birthday comes and it's just a few days later. So his birthday also passed. (laughs) He would have been 59 years old and he didn't get to be that age. And then just a few days ago, um, really, yeah, like a couple of days ago was Father's Day. So this is like such a terrible time for me where it's like his death anniversary and his birthday and then Father's Day. It just, it's always just a really difficult like 30 days for me (laughs) personally. And I just decided that this year I wanted to channel what I was feeling into uh, talking about films about grief. So before I did this episode, I did an episode about Pablo Lorraine's 2016 film Jackie which is about grief and I talk a lot about my grief in that episode and then now I'm talking about Three Colors Blue but that's why I chose this film is because I felt like I needed to do something with all these emotions I just had to talk about it because I don't I don't have any other thing that I can do with these emotions that are just so overwhelming and so debilitating sometimes. And I feel like a broken record on this podcast talking about grief, talking about my dad. And you know, I was going to apologize for it 
I was, I was like, oh, I better say something in this episode. And I better say like, oh, I'm so sorry. I go on about this. And I got to thinking about it and I decided that I will not apologize for it. I refuse to apologize for it because this is my life. This is my story. And I have the right to talk about it as many times as I need to talk about it. And I think we all do. I don't have a lot in this life and I've lost a lot, but I won't have my story taken away. And you know, I'd give anything for it not to be my story. I would give anything not to have to talk about his death over and over again. I would give it all back to have him back. I wish I could reverse it. I wish I didn't have to live with this every day, but I can't do that. It is with me. It has formed me. It doesn't mean that I'm crying 24-7. It doesn't mean that I don't laugh. It doesn't mean that I don't have a full life. That I don't have uh, moments of beauty and pleasure and delight. But it does mean that there is a melancholy and an anguish and a sorrow inside of me that is always present, even at times of joy and happiness. And I won't apologize for missing someone that I loved deeply for 16 years, almost 17. I won't apologize for talking about that, even if people get sick of hearing about it. Even if people think it's too raw, it's too much, it's too personal. Why can't you move on? Why can't you get over it the way other people seem to? This is my life and I own it and I claim it. And I will always talk about the things that matter to me and that I think are important and that is part of my story. And my life is very empty without him. I feel the absence every single day and I have to talk about it and I just won't apologize for it. And so blue, talking about three colors blue, that's where I'm at right now. That's why I want to talk about it is because I want to tell you what this film means to me as someone who struggles with grief. And even though my story is very different from the main character of Julie, it still moves me very deeply. I last saw Three Colors Blue in 2012. So it's been seven years since I last saw it. Kishlovsky was a really important director to me when I was starting to fall in love with art house cinema. And that really happened in 2011, I would say. That's when I got really interested in European art house film. That was when I first started to watch Chris Marker and Agnes Varda. And I really discovered the French New Wave first. You know, Jean-Luc Godard and um, Francois Truffaut. And I started to realize that art house film could be really, um, it could be emotional and it could be deep. I also saw um, like The Passion of Joan of Arc early in my life, which is like my favorite film, basically. I'm trying to think of all the films I saw back then. <laughs> I watched a lot. Ingmar Bergman was really, is, and still is really important to me. I have several episodes about his work, Summer Interlude, Wild Strawberries, and Autumn Sonata. So I discovered I discovered Ingmar Bergman, Michelangelo Antonioni, Italian neorealism, the French New Wave, French poetic realism, all kinds of different movements, you know, all kinds of different directors that I fell in love with at that time. Christoph Kishlovsky was central to that. I saw The Double Life of Veronique. 
and I saw three colors red and three colors blue. These were films that absolutely enchanted and entranced me. The Double Life of Veronique is one of my top favorite films ever. So it's fascinating to revisit Blue after so many years, after seven years, and so much has happened since 2012 in my life personally, um, in the world, <laughs> so much has changed. And I actually love to explore this on the podcast. I love to explore the act of re-watching a film from your past and how that can be such a different experience, how our response can be different and how our response can show us the ways that we have changed over the years. Like, how does a film hit you seven years later? Does it hit you in a deeper way, a less deeper way? I would say, for me, Blue hits me deeper now, honestly. I mean, I loved it seven years ago. I think I watched it in 2011, and then I watched it again in 2012, and then this is my third time watching it. But I do feel a deeper resonance with it now that I am older. I mean, that would have been more when I was in my early 20s. Now I'm almost 30. So a lot has changed in my life. And I knew that it would be an emotional experience for me. And and it was. And it's one of those films that has stayed in my consciousness for years and years. That's actually how I know that a film is important to me. It's interesting because I've noticed that like the last few episodes or I don't know, a lot of the episodes that I've done are actually of films that I watched years ago that I watched in 2011, 2012 when I was first falling in love with art house cinema. I think because if they stay in my consciousness, then I know that they're important to me. You know, if they stay with me for seven years, then I know I have to talk about it. It's also why I don't tend to cover a lot of newer releases, because I don't know if we can really take stock of a film until time has passed. You know, yeah, maybe a film works at the specific time when it's released, but to me, a great work of art, a great film, it should it should remain relevant as the years pass. Sometimes that's how you know it's a great film, or at least a great film to you, is it does it stay with you? Because if you watch it and then you instantly forget it, then maybe it's not that important. So if it stays with you for a year or two years or whatever, then you know that it's important. And that's why I tend to cover films once a few years have passed, usually. And as I record this episode, I wanted to set the ambiance. And so I'm actually recording it in the middle of the night, in the dark. But I have this light projector that I recently bought. And it projects light onto my wall and my ceiling. And there are seven colors that are included in it. And there's also some nature sounds. It's wonderful. When I have the color blue projected, because that's one of the options, it makes me feel like I'm underwater or like I'm at the bottom of the ocean or something. And then there's another option where it's like multicolored. And then I feel like I'm inside of a kaleidoscope. So I decided to put it on the color blue as I'm recording this. So I love to create this kind of intimacy when I am recording the episodes. I mean, ideally, I wish that those of you who listened actually listened to the episodes like in the dark, in the middle of the night, while you're laying in bed, you know, like I would prefer that. That's like my ideal environment for you. 
to listen to these episodes to sort of match the intimacy of them. But it's up to you what you do. You could be washing dishes. You could be, uh, you know, commuting to work. I'm actually fascinated by that. Um, you know, if you ever contact me or if you want to tweet me or, or leave a comment or something, tell me how you listen to the episodes. I would love to know. Um, I think someone told me once they were washing dishes when they listened to an episode. You know, are you walking to work? Are you on a train? You know, I just, I think it's kind of fascinating to imagine the way that our lives are subtly connected to each other through this podcast. And it's actually something that Christoph Kishlovsky was fascinated by. I'm going to share a quote later on. He was fascinated by these unseen connections between people. And I think that's why I love his work so much because his work is about intuition. It's about coincidence at times. It's about how people are connected in ways that they don't even know and don't even understand. His films feel very personal and very emotional. And that's something that I love about them. And it also makes them difficult to talk about. But I just wanted to let you know that as I'm talking about Three Colors Blue, my I am bathed in the color blue, that my room is the color blue as I talk about it. And when I was watching this film, I was thinking about how every film is different for every person. But what I think happens when we watch a film, especially one that we deeply love, is that it becomes yours. You take ownership of the film and you make it what you want to make it for yourself and your life. Yes, there are objective things about a film. I, I think there. I think film is both objective and subjective, and I want to talk about this for a minute. So there are objective things about a film. There's the plot, the names of the characters, etc. But then I think there's also this subjective element to a film, and that. That's the feelings that it makes you feel, the memories that it brings up for you, the time and place at which you saw the film. And all of that is going to be different and unique to each viewer. And that's what I try to get at when I talk about film is that subjective experience of the film. And it sort of reminds me of Agnes Varda. And she has this interview about Cleo from five to seven. I guess it's, I think it's part of the Criterion Collection edition of the film, or it's just some kind of a documentary or interview that she did talking about the film. And she said how, um, how Cleo from five to seven is about, is about time but it's about the both the objective and the subjective experience of time. And I still remember watching this and just being blown away by what she was saying because I'd never heard it put in those terms. And I do have an episode about Cleo from 5 to 7, by the way. So there's time as it exists in reality, in seconds, minutes, and hours, right? But then there's also the way that we experience time subjectively in our minds and bodies. The way we say, oh, time flew. You know, like an hour goes by, but it doesn't feel like an hour. You're not experiencing it that way. And that's how cinema is for me. There is this very deep, almost wordless, subjective experience of film. And I've had some of my most intense experiences, the most intense experiences of my life with cinema. It's why it is so powerful for me. Like I'm much more of a literary person and I was for most of my life. When I was growing up, I did not watch a ton of films. I was reading books. I love literature. I love Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath and Marguerite Duras and Clarice Lispector. You know, I, that I like like women. I love women who are sort of experimental and stream of consciousness and and things like that. I love women writers. I also love um 
Daphne du Maurier and Shirley Jackson. And so I have all kinds of writers and Catherine Mansfield's one of my favorites too. So I've always been a literary person much more than a film person. But in 2011, that is when everything changed for me because I found art house film. I found art house cinema. I found Bergman and Tarkovsky and Kishlovsky and Varda and Kiristami and Ozu. Like these were the people I found and Chris Marker and Renee and all of it. And I found that, oh my God, cinema is emotional and it's deep and it's it, it brought up so much for me. You know, up until that point, I don't think I had experienced film in that way as an art form. It was much more of an entertainment. And so I think when you have those experiences with film, it's life-changing. You know, seeing The Passion of Joan of Arc, seeing Birth by Jonathan Glazer, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, This Film Blue, or The Double Life of Veronique. I've had some of my most intense experiences ever with cinema. And it's things that I can't put into words. Like, it lives inside of me. And that is what Kishlovsky gives me time and time again. These unspeakable miracles when I feel deeply connected to life, to the universe, and to myself. It's this feeling of overflowing. Like, it's incredibly intense. Very few things give me that experience. And cinema gives that to me. It's it's almost erotic, which is weird to say. It's not sexual, but it, there's an eroticism or like a sensuality about it. I can't explain it. It's like, it's of the body. It like goes into your body sometimes when you're watching these films and what they make you feel inside. Like, I don't know. I'm not religious. I'm an atheist. And so the only kind of transcendence that I've ever been able to find has been through art, has been through like a poem or a not or a really well written novel or a gorgeous film like The Passion of Joan of Arc or something and it just activates something in me you know when I watch these films and Kishlovsky has given me that experience so many times honestly he really has Tarkovsky's done that too like watching the mirror or watching stalker you feel like you're I don't know you feel like you're engaging with something that is not totally of this world <laughs> or like when I listen to the music of Tori Amos that's very transcendent for me when I listen to certain songs by her and so I just I have these things in my life that are very close to transcendence in a way and I feel that with Kishlovsky because he is like he's not a religious filmmaker but he's spiritual I think and he is metaphysical and he's interested in in emotion and in feeling and so his films really bring that up for me and his films are also about connections and about unseen connections between people as I said earlier and I think it's very important that at a time when people feel so disconnected I think it's important that we have these films by him that are about connection and they are really films that believe in connection and believe that it is possible. Kishlovsky was so special I'm not going to go through any kind of biography about him but he is just an exceptional director and if you have not seen more of his work I definitely recommend that that you see the double life of Veronique, that you see the Decalogue. Yeah, I just, I love his work so deeply. I almost don't even know how to talk about him. I keep saying that. I'm such a broken record with that. I don't even think we deserved Kishlovsky. Like, we did not deserve this man. I have such a soft spot for him, and I feel so much affection for him. There was no director like him, and there will never be another like him. 
I think he was completely unique and incomparable and inimitable. I don't think anybody could ever step into the shoes of Kishlovsky and what he did with the Decalogue, with Veronique, with three colors red, three colors blue. I don't take as much to three colors white. I'm going to be honest here. It's the lighter film of the three, but I just don't get into them. And I'm going to talk about the trilogy in a moment and give you more information. But um, I just want to let you know that he's a really personal director for me. And because some of my first experiences with art house cinema were with his films, was with Veronique, was with this trilogy. And so I cannot separate that when I'm talking about him or talking about his films. That always comes into it is what those films meant to me at that time in my early 20s when I was discovering cinema and really discovering this whole new language of cinema. Because it's very different to watch a mainstream blockbuster by Spielberg or whoever. And I'm not saying Spielberg doesn't have good films. I do like some of his films. But when you're going into these more mainstream films, it's very different than when you're watching a Kishlovsky film or a Tarkovsky or a Bergman or an Antonioni or Agnes Varda or, you know, all kinds of different directors. They require something different of you. And I think they evoke different things from you. And Kishlovsky has always been like that for me. And I also want to say that I watched this film. I actually watched it on DVD, which is rare for me. I stream a lot these days. I live in a rural area. There's no film culture where I live. There is no art house movie theater where I live. The closest theater is pretty good ways away and it only shows blockbusters. So I rely on streaming. But a while back, I was able to get the Three Colors trilogy on eBay. I got it gently used. And I just decided that I don't really collect a lot of DVDs because I don't have the money. And Criterion DVDs can be, usually they're about $20 if you get them new. I just don't have the money for that. (laughs) I mean, I watch hundreds of films every year. There's no way I could buy all of them. But when it comes to certain films that I just, I feel an emotional connection to, I have tried to get physical copies of them. Like I did get The Passion of Joan of Arc. I did get The Tree of Life. So I have a little tiny Criterion collection going on. It's very small. Very small DVD collection of Criterions going. So I do have the box set of this. It was such a great experience to watch it on DVD. To go back to that analog and to that, um, to the tactile experience of watching a film of like holding the DVD in your hands. Um, The Criterion Collection did an amazing job with the trilogy. It comes in like a box and there's three different, you know, sections for one for blue, one for red, one for white, and the and red actually has two discs in it. There's in like an extra documentary and extra features. All of them have extra features on them. And then there's this really thick booklet that comes with it too that has some pictures of, you know, like some stills and then has um, interviews with Kishlovsky and the cinematographers on the films and then also essays about the film. So it was just such a great experience to get off the internet, right? Because when you stream, you have to go on your browser and instead with a DVD, you just can put it in your computer and watch it. And I love the DVD menus, you know, when you can look at the chapters and the the supplements and the, um, you know, the subtitles and like, and they each have a different screen. Like I miss DVD 
menus and like what they look like. They're beautifully designed. So it was really great to watch this on a DVD and have that physical connection to the film in that way that I don't know if I would have felt when I was streaming it. Now 99% of the films that I've covered on the podcast I have streamed. It's fine. I'm not against streaming. I depend on it. But it was kind of nice that in this situation to have the DVD to hold, to have the booklet to hold, to be able to touch the materials. And that was a nice experience, you know. And I actually got it used on eBay. And I definitely recommend to you, if you're like me, and you're a cinephile on a very limited budget, <laughs> to look into that. That on eBay, you can get it like new or gently used. I always go with um, either brand new or like new or very good condition. I mean, usually you're going to get a lower price with it being used. And all of the DVDs that I've gotten from eBay that were used have been fine quality. But I always look for very good or like new when I'm doing that. It's it's allowed me to have like a little bit of a of a DVD collection with Criterion and that's nice. You know, it's nice to have those and it's definitely a tip I would give you. Um, and I only do it for the films that I just really feel a connection to and that I want to have a physical copy of. So I do want to talk a moment about how Three Colors Blue, some of the connections that it has with an earlier film by Krzysztof Kieślowski, a film of his from 1985. And I actually talked in depth about this film. It's called No End. On another podcast, it's called The Complete Podcast, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And everything I'm talking about in this episode and my sources will be in the show notes. And I talked to The Complete Podcast. It's hosted by Travis and Matt. They were really wonderful and they're great hosts. And what they do is that each season they go through the complete filmography of a director. So one season they did Stanley Kubrick, and then one season they did Elaine May, and then now they're doing Krzysztof Kieślowski. And they had me on for the episode about No End, and we had a really great in-depth discussion about the film, and we talked about how it had some connections to Three Colors Blue. So I definitely recommend listening to that episode if you'd like to, and there will be a link to it. And that was a really great experience to be on, on the uh, podcast. So No End is about this woman named Ursula. She's a translator, and she loses her husband on tech he's a lawyer and he ends up dying and she is alone and she has to raise their son and she struggles with her grief I don't want to give away everything about the film but the film is I saw it as like transitional for Kishlovsky because for a long time he made films in Poland his Polish films are a bit more political and they're about um, sort of the social conditions of living in Poland, you know, in the 80s and around that time. The Decalogue deals with that too. And they're just kind of different than his most famous films like the, the Three Colors Trilogy and Veronique. They're different in tone, in look, in all kinds of ways. But No End is also one of the first films he did with a female protagonist or was the first one that he did. You can see how in that film he's looking at grief He's looking at things like that. And for us, when we were on, talking on the podcast, it didn't totally work for us because there's this personal aspect about Ursula and her grief over her husband. And then there's this more political aspect about um, about a man in, in prison and that, that Antec had been defending and stuff like that. And we felt like the personal story about Ursula was much more compelling 
than the political part. And No End is really interesting and important because it's the first film where he works with two really pivotal people in his career. And that is Shbignev Preisner, the composer. This is the first film where where Preisner and Kishlovsky work together. And the music in No End will be reused in Three Colors Blue. So we hear a little bit of that music in No End. And Preisner worked on the Decalogue, he worked on Veronique, on the trilogy, and he's absolutely essential to some of Kishlovsky's best work, I think. Kishlovsky also first started to work with Kristoff Pishevich who became his co-writer going forward. And they co-wrote No End. And then they also co-wrote, you know, the Decalogue and the Trilogy and Veronique. And he co-wrote Blue, Three Colors Blue. So these two people come into his life around No End. And the theme of grief, the theme of, you know, what does a woman do after she loses her husband? How does she deal with that? That is a big theme in Blue, obviously. That's the whole film. And it feels like maybe he wanted to revisit that. And he did it through Blue. And I think Blue works better than No End, personally. You know, I felt a deeper connection to Blue than to No End. And both and these women take very different paths in dealing with grief, too. And so that's important to, to comment on, too. But I just wanted to let you know that he had this film, No End, and there are some parallels between the two films in looking at grief and, and different things like that. And But it's that film is also so important with the people that Kishlovsky starts to work with. So I wanted to give you some behind the scenes information and background information about the Three Colors trilogy because that's really important. I'm hoping that those of you who are listening have seen Three Colors Blue and maybe have seen some of the trilogy at least. That way it's not spoiled for you, but we'll see. So what is the Three Colors trilogy? Blue is the first film in the trilogy. It goes blue, white, and red. Each film corresponds to a color in the French flag, blue, white, and red in that order. Each film also deals with three ideals that really came out of the French Revolution, and those are liberty, equality, and fraternity. So liberty is explored in blue, equality is explored in white, fraternity is explored in red. The films are about political things, or like these political ideas, but he is exploring them through a personal lens and on a much more personal level. And according to an essay by Colin McCabe, all three films were, quote, written, shot, and edited in less than three years, unquote. And I do believe that the shooting, the actual filming of them, of all three alone happened in around 10 months, which is astonishing to think about, really. Kishlovsky did this interview with Hiroshi Takahashi and talked about the trilogy. And he said, quote, I try to pose the question whether those who took on these slogans and fought for them had enough imagination to know what they really meant. Are they compatible with human nature? Because maybe they're only beautiful words. What do they mean from the perspective of an ordinary person's life? Do we really want to be free? Or do we only talk about it? Of course, we all want to have the freedom to travel and money for the ticket. But I think that we are predisposed to seek out our own captivity. Without it, we feel bad. Because liberty may all also mean loneliness, sacrifice, unquote. And in another interview with Jonathan Romney, he said, you can say I want to be free, but how do you free yourself from your own feelings, your own memories, your own desires? Perhaps we can't function without them, which automatically means we aren't free. We're prisoners of our own emotions. 
unquote. And I find that fascinating. He's really interrogating this idea of freedom and liberty and what do we mean when we say them. Yes, we want to be free in the way that we don't want to be in prison. We don't want to be unable to speak the way that we want to speak and we want to be able to as he said travel and you know go about your life but he's talking about freedom I think in a much more emotional way and we'll see that through our main character Julie where she's trying to free herself from her past she's trying to free herself from the memory of these people that she's lost and can we do that and what does it mean to do that and so he's actually really interrogating freedom we always see it as a positive thing oh of course we want liberty we want freedom but what does that mean when we live it every day and also in an interview with Paul Coates he talked about why he wanted to explore these ideas and he's talking about not just the three colors trilogy but also the Decalogue which was 10 one hour films that were based on the Ten Commandments and it was actually for Polish television. I actually have an episode about the Decalogue but it came really really early in the podcast when I did not have a lot of resources and so I don't know how I feel about it. It may not be the best quality but I do have an episode about it and so he says quote these things are where we come from the first second and tenth commandments but also liberty equality and brotherhood and we are as we are today because because once upon a time somebody gave his head for these three words, allowed himself to be crucified for these ten commandments. All these things have a certain significance for modern life and our relationship with the world and each other. They all build and shape us. So the question arises, where are they located within us? What is our real attitude to them? I think the question is worth revisiting because if we fail to understand where we came from and what we are made of, we cannot understand who we are, what we are doing on this earth, where we are headed, unquote. So maybe to some people it seems gimmicky. Oh, why are you exploring the Ten Commandments? Why are you exploring, you know, liberty, equality, and fraternity? But he's actually asking perspective really profound questions about the the ideas and the ideals and the principles that govern our lives that we like to think that we believe in and that we value but what do they really mean for our lives and so that's why I think the three colors trilogy is so important and also the decalogue is to think about these ideas that are maybe not ancient you know the french revolution was only a few hundred years ago but you know they've been around for a while people have died for these things we say that we value them and that they're important to us but how does that translate how do these ideas translate into our lived reality and i think that's what kishlovsky was trying to look at and just a few general things about the film. Preisner's score for it, which is really important. The whole film, since it's about a composer and his wife, the score is crucial to the film. Uh, the score was actually completed before the film started, so it was already done. And also the use of the colors of the French flag was actually really connected to the financing of the film, that the financing was coming from France. And and so, you know, if it had come from another country, then it would have been different colors. I mean, Kishlovsky in interviews talks about that. He says, quote, if a different country had provided the finance, Germany, for instance, and I had made it as a German film, 
then yellow would have taken the place of blue, and one would have had yellow, red, and black. It really is not important, unquote. And I do think maybe people get caught up in the colors, you know, of like, oh, but what's blue in the film, and what is the significance? And and I understand people wanting to do that. I'm not going to do that in my analysis of the film, you know, I'm just not. But obviously, blue is in it. Blue, the color blue plays an important role, but it's not going to be my main focus. <laughs> but I think that's interesting to think that, wow, so if he'd gotten different financing, we could have a completely different film. It would be yellow. And finally, I just wanted to talk about Juliette Binoche for a minute. This was probably one of the first Juliette Binoche films that I ever saw. She's such a wonderful actress. She's certainly one of my favorites. I think if I could have any actress's career you know, if, if if a genie gave me a wish and I could like uh, inhabit an actress and live her life, it would probably be Juliette Binoche or Isabel Hubert because they have worked with some of the most important directors of our time and from the past. And Binoche has had such a storied career and all of the people that she's worked with from Kishlovsky to Kiarostami to just recently Claire Denis. She's just worked with everybody. I wanted to talk a bit about what she said on the Criterion DVD. A lot of my sources are from the Criterion collection and the supplements. And there is this uh, this section where she talks about the making of the film and stuff. And she said that her and Kishlovsky had a really deep trust and they had a bond with each other. She said that she was offered the lead role of the double life of Veronique, but at the time she was making The Lovers on the Bridge. And so she turned it down. That that was so interesting to think of her in that film. When she was offered Blue by Kishlovsky, she had actually been approached by Steven Spielberg to be in Jurassic Park. And she was offered a role in that, but she decided to go with Blue. She said that Blue was much more interesting to her and more compelling to her. And that's why she took it. Could you imagine her in Jurassic Park? That would be wild. Before shooting of the film began, they did not know what Julie was going to wear, the character. They did not have any wardrobe for her. And so Kishlovsky decided that Binoche would just wear her own clothes. And so when you see her in the film, she's wearing her own clothes. There was no wardrobe for the character. And she also said that despite the heaviness of the film, that the set itself was really light and joyous and just uh, filled with laughter. And that makes me happy to hear. I'm glad that it was like that. You can't be in sadness all the time. And I know I come off that way on the podcast that I'm like this morose, depressed person all the time. But the thing is for me is that cinema is the place where I am very serious. And it's the place where I want to talk about the things that devastate me and the things that I struggle with. That is the art form that I go to. I also go to literature for that. I have a really hard time reading frivolous books. I have a hard time reading like a throwaway book personally. Like I want to read the heavy stuff and it's the same thing with films. I have a really hard time watching superficial films. Like I'll try and I just can't do it. (laughs) I cannot do it for the life of me. I cannot watch a silly film. Like I have to watch the art house for the most part. I go to other art forms for escapism. So I'll go to television. I I have no problem watching hours of Shark Tank, (laughs) 
like I've really been getting into that lately. Um, or British detective shows. I love, love, love British detective shows. I love British television in general. I love British TV deeply. So I, I don't mind just spending hours watching stuff like that. I love Miss Marple. I love the one with Geraldine McEwen. She's the only Miss Marple that I acknowledge <laughs> and that I like. I prefer her. I love pop music. I absolutely adore pop music. Just recently, I've become obsessed with Kylie Minogue. And I've just been, I literally went through Kylie Minogue's entire discography. From her first album to her most recent. So over over 30 years of Kylie Minogue music. I've listened to all of them. I don't understand why she's not bigger here in the United States. She is not big here at all. People know the locomotion and they know can't get you out of my head. And she has so many amazing songs. Like I'm so in love with her. So in love with her music. And I find that pop music really can help me through difficult times. So I I have other places where I'm silly you know, and where my fun side comes out and my sense of humor. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen on this podcast. And I'm sorry, I go for the jugular on the podcast. Like I have to talk about the heavy, deep, painful stuff. But I think we're all like that. I think we have art forms that we go to for that catharsis, for that emotional therapeutic catharsis that we need. Then we go to other art forms for relief or escapism or just for joy and happiness and pleasure, right? It's it's different for all of us. And for me, it just happens to be cinema where I really want to talk about pain. I really want to talk about grief. I want to talk about depression and anxiety and loneliness and poverty. And I want to talk about the things that I've been through and about my life and suffering. And I don't, I just have to, I just have to do that. But unfortunately, it means that you don't get to see my lighter, funnier, sillier side. And I do apologize for that. Now, according to Nick James, Three Colors Blue actually helped to revive Juliette Binoche's career. And I didn't know this. She was an art house darling for a while, but she went through some missteps with some of her films in the early 90s. Uh, there was Louis Miles' Damage. Now, I've seen Damage. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate Damage at all. But to Nick James, Damage was a misstep. She also did a remake of Wuthering Heights that was sort of, I guess, not so great. I haven't seen that one. But he said that this film sort of restored her. He said, quote, it restored her in the eyes of her art house fans who recognized that she was now a formidable actress as well as a screen icon, unquote. So according to Nick James, this helped her career and she um, she became beloved again in art house circles, I guess. I feel like I'm all over the place with this episode. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, it's been a difficult time for me and even though I want to do these episodes, and I want to talk about what I'm going through, it can be draining. You know, it can be a lot. It can, I can put like too much pressure on myself and expect too much of myself and um, just know that I am doing my best. I don't always have a lot to give, but I give what I have. I, I feel like this episode is sort of all over the place and I do apologize for that. But now I want to talk about the film. So I'm finally going into the film analysis after all of those um, tangents and detours and you should watch the full three 
Three Colors trilogy. I There's no way that I can provide you a complete overview of everything about it. You know, there's been so much written about the trilogy. And I would say that I connect the most to blue. And then after that, red. And then white, I just still struggle with. I should probably revisit it at some point. But I love red too. I need to watch red. It's been so many years since I watched it. But I think right now, blue is definitely my favorite out of the three. Because it is engaging with themes that are really important to me like memory and grief and loss and things like that and as I said earlier I'm not interested in going through and talking about every instance where the color blue happens obviously it's in there for a reason there's also a lot of uh Kishlovsky love to put things in the film like these little echoes you know, like these visual echoes. And so things recur throughout the film and and different things like that. And there's different connections between the films. And people like to go and search for those things. And personally, I'm not interested in decoding or dissecting this film in that way. You know, or talking about what the color blue means or how often it recurs. You know, I'm not putting together a puzzle. I'm trying to capture my feelings. So I do want to go into certain scenes. I want to talk about what they mean to me, how I interpret them within the film and things like that. That's what I want to do. So the film opens with a tire, actually. A tire uh, going down a road and then we see we see a little girl's hand and she puts a lollipop, a lollipop wrapper out of the window. That's what you're seeing. That's what that blue foil is. It's her lollipop wrapper. The car stops on the side of the road. We see some fluid dripping from it. It's probably brake fluid. They stop on the side of the road and then the car continues. We see a young man and he will witness the accident. We don't actually see it. The accident occurs off screen and there's just the terrible sound of it. And then we see the car mangled after it's hit the tree. What we're going to find out is that this was the car that Julie was in with her husband, Patrice, and her daughter, Anna. Patrice is a very famous composer, and that's why music will become so important throughout the film. He was actually working on a piece of music for the unification of Europe, which is something that was going on in, in the early 90s that Kishlovsky wanted to engage with, obviously, in the film. And he was just working on this really important composition for that. So he dies with that unfinished, and throughout the film, it will be on Julie to sort of finish it. And the thing about this car accident is that it's so ordinary. You know, if you think about it, these things happen every day. People witness them or they are victims of them, of these car accidents. And so it's completely believable that this could happen. That a woman could be in a car crash and two of her loved ones would die in it. And that's what befalls Julie is like the worst thing in the world that could happen to somebody is what happens to her. And then we have this scene where it looks like feathers on a blanket. It's very, um, it's hard to understand what it is. And then we start to hear breathing. And this is something that recurs a few times throughout the film is we hear Julie breathing. It's almost like we're inside her head. And that was really important to Kishlovsky to give you that sense that you were inside her perspective. It's Julie and she's in the hospital in her bed after the accident. And we actually see 
her eye and we see the doctor reflected in her iris. And this is an image that will recur later on in the film near the end, near the very end. So immediately we are in her world and we're seeing things from her perspective. And it's in that scene that the doctor tells her that her husband Patrice has died and that her daughter Anna has died too. And when she hears that, she just buries her face in the pillow. You can feel what that news does to her body. And this scene actually reminded me a bit of The Diving Bell and the Butterfly by Julian Schnabel, which is about Jean-Dominique Bobby, who had locked-in syndrome, and he ended up writing a memoir by blinking one of his eyes. But after, uh, Bobby had a stroke and that's how he ended up having locked in syndrome and in the film The Diving Bell and the Butterfly there's a scene where I think he wakes up in the hospital and Julian Schnabel made it so that it seemed like you were actually looking through Bobby's eyes. He even mimicked the blinking. It was fascinating. I love The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I have an episode about it actually. I don't know. It's just a really important film to me and and Bobby's memoir means a lot to me as well. And so when we see Julie in the hospital bed like that, I thought of that scene and I wonder if Schnabel was maybe inspired by Blue. I, I don't know. It was, it's like we're seeing things through Julie's eyes at times. And that was something that Schnabel sort of mimicked in The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Understandably, after Julie gets this information, she is completely devastated. And she ends up distracting a nurse by throwing something at glass and the nurse gets distracted. And Julie goes to where the medicine is stored in the hospital. And she puts a bottle of pills in her mouth. And I still remember this saying like from years ago. That's the thing for me about Blue is that there are so many scenes in this film that have stayed with me. Whether it's Julie with the pills, you know, after she takes them out of her mouth, she has like this powder on her lips. Or when she's in the pool, there are several scenes where she's in the pool. Or when she's with the blue chandelier, which I'll talk about. So many scenes, so many images in this film. You don't even need words. You don't even need dialogue. There's not that much dialogue in the film, honestly. The scenes just stay with me and the images stay with me. Whereas with White, I could not tell you a lot of imagery from that film. And it's kind of the same with Red. I mean, it's been a while since I saw Red. I'm not saying I don't like Red. I just don't remember it really clearly because it has been so many years. I mean, of course, I remember her, um, you know, blowing the blowing the gum, you know, blowing the bubble when she's chewing gum and stuff like that. But there is just something really potent about Blue, the imagery of it that gets you. And so she has all these pills in her mouth and she doesn't swallow them. It's such an emotional scene. And for a while, she just holds the pills in her mouth. It's almost like she's debating. She's debating, should she choose life or should she choose death? And she ends up spitting them into her hand. And you can see that white powder on her lips. The scene itself made me cry. Because the whole time she's doing this, the nurse is watching her. And Julie says, she says to the nurse, you know, I can't do it. I can't do it. I just found myself crying. Like, this was really emotional for me to watch again. I had to take it in breaks. Like, it took me a week or more to watch the film. I would watch maybe 20 or 30 minutes and then stop because I myself was going through my own depression and my own pain about my father's birthday and about Father's Day. I actually ended up finishing the film on Father's Day and I'll talk more about that near the end, but I just sobbed. 
I sobbed after the film ended. For me watching this film, I cried a lot through it just because of my own experience and what was going on in my own life because I've really been struggling for like a month now with this. I have not been able to watch any films. Like, I have no desire to watch films right now. I've watched this one. I watched Blue so I could do this episode. And I watched Jackie um, to do that episode as well. But beyond those two films, I've not watched anything because I can't concentrate. I've just been in so much emotional turmoil and emotional pain about my dad. I've just been listening to pop music. Kylie Minogue, thank you. My salvation. My pop goddess. That's helped. (laughs) And I've been watching YouTube videos like incessantly, like YouTube videos that are like 10 minutes because my concentration is shot and I cannot focus on anything for long periods of time. Now this will pass. I'm sure it will. I'll eventually get back to watching films, but this is just the place that I'm in right now because of my emotional turmoil. So seeing her with those pills in her mouth, I just broke down crying because I remembered shortly after my own father's death, I have a very vivid memory of like, we had like a bottle of Tylenol in the house and I was by myself. My mom wasn't there for some reason. And I think I talk about this in another episode, but I don't know which one. And I just emptied this entire bottle of pills. I emptied it into my hand and I just thought I could do this. I I could leave. I could just leave this world. I mean, I don't know. I don't even know. Can a bottle of Tylenol kill you? I don't even know. In my mind, it could in that moment. And I just thought I I could just leave. It would just all be over because I was in so much pain. I'm still in so much pain. And, you know, I would be lying if I said I didn't think about suicide, that I didn't have suicidal thoughts at times. It's there. It's there with me. You know, I have to be honest about it. Have I ever done anything? No. When I get into that place and I think about that, I think about my mom. You know, I could never do that to my mother. Everything that she's been through. Because after my dad died, my grandma died a year later. And then a year or so after that, my uncle died. So my mom lost her husband, her mother, and her brother within about three years. All of that loss, you know, has just broken me in so many ways. It's broken her. I see what it's done to her. That's what hurts the most. And then that breaks me because I just, she's not the same person that she was. She's just not because of all this loss that she's gone through. And I can't change it. I can't take away her pain. And I see it every day. I see her pain. And so I try to keep my pain. I try to hide it more from her. I don't want her to see how bad it is for me sometimes. I don't want to burden her with that. I don't want her to see that. So I do try to keep it more to myself or talk about it on the podcast or something. It's so hard to see her hurting. I just want to take it all away. I want to give her the world. I want to give her everything and I can't. It just kills me sometimes because she struggles with her health and she struggles a lot and it's just so painful for me and it also contributes to my own issues to see her in pain and to see her struggling and so you know I I put those pills in my hand and I thought about it I wanted to I almost dropped out of school because he died when I was a junior in high school and I had to go through my senior year after he died and I didn't I had days where I didn't think I could do it. I really had thought about um, dropping out of school because I just couldn't take it. You know, and even now I'm almost 30 and I don't feel it. You know, I don't feel young or vigorous 
I feel so old and ancient and just broken, you know? I'm not like other people my age. I don't have the same energy. I have health issues. I have all kinds of things that I deal with. And sometimes I do wonder, like, why me? Like, why? I have cousins who have such different lives for me. They're married. They they have, like, fuller lives. They're, they don't have the things that I have to deal with. I'm not saying they don't have issues or they don't go through things. I don't have any relationship with them. I don't know everything about their lives. Just what you see on like Facebook or something. (laughs) And I just compare myself to them and I think, God, they've got it together. They're resilient. You know, they're okay and I'm not. I'm such a failure. You know, I'm so ashamed of my life and I, I just don't know. I don't know why I can't deal better with things. I don't know. I just think I guess everything I went through at 16, it just made me really fragile. (laughs) I'm just, I'm incredibly fragile and I can't cope. I can't cope with life. I can't cope with the world. But, so that's why I wanted to get the hell out, (laughs) you know, with these pills. And I just put them back in the bottle. I couldn't do it. Couldn't do that to my mom. So I had to keep going. I I do keep going. Sometimes I just don't know how. (laughs) But I just have to keep going. I have to, I know. I know I do. I've got films to watch and books to read and I've got things to offer. You know, that's what I tell myself. I've got things to offer the world. And even when I don't believe it, I still try to tell myself that. Like, I have things to contribute. But I understand Julie in that moment, you know, just wanting to escape. But she stops herself. And something I noticed about that scene was that we hear her breathing in it. Like several times throughout the film, we hear her breathing. And I I don't think I had noticed that the first times I watched it, that we hear her breathing like that. So while she's still in the hospital, a friend of Patrice's, Olivier, and he'll be an important character throughout the film. He shows up at the hospital. Julie's in bed and he gives her this portable television, I guess. It's like a foldable though. It looked almost like a laptop, but it wasn't. It was a TV. And I thought that was so interesting because it was the early 90s. I was like, what is this? Maybe some of you listening know more about that. I had never seen a TV like that that looked like a little laptop. But I guess those were a thing in the 90s. And so on that TV, she's able to watch the funeral of Anna and Patrice. And the funeral music plays, and that is also the music from No End, that film I talked about with you from 1985. And it's also the music that ended up being played at Krzysztof Kieślowski's funeral in 1996. And Juliette Binoche said on one of the Criterion supplements, she said that, I think it was when she was talking specifically about the scene, she was watching it, she did some scene commentary, and she said that it's still hard for her to watch that scene because she remembers that music being played at Kieślowski's funeral. And he died after a heart operation. He had heart problems, you know, for a while. And he ended up dying in 1996. He was quite young, only in his 50s. And he had actually retired from filmmaking. But you never know. He might have made more films. He might have come back. We'll never know. He was definitely gone too soon. And I'm just sort of haunted by the lost potential, the lost possibilities, because there's just nobody who will ever be like Kishlovsky for me. So this funeral scene is devastating. We see the coffins on screen, and there's a full-size one for Patrice, and then there is the child-size one for Anna. It's very touching when Julie, as she's watching, she puts her finger up to the screen, 
with her finger, she touches Anna's casket, almost as though she could touch her again, but she can't. And there are a lot of close-ups of Julie's face in this scene as she watches the funeral. She does cry, and we hear her breathing again. It's, It's almost like you're inside her head or inside her body when you hear that breathing. And then in the next scene, Julie is in the hospital. She's recuperating and she's sitting alone with her eyes closed. And something happens that it occurs throughout the film and it's very mysterious. And this is always the thing about Kishlovsky cinema for me is the mystery in it. Is that things happen that don't really have any kind of explanation. And you as a viewer, I think, have to give it meaning or make sense out of it. So she's just sitting there and then suddenly the music plays and her face is bathed in blue light that has no source. And she wakes up. The light fades. There's this fade to black. But instead of it going to another scene as it normally would, Usually when the screen fades to black, when it comes back, you're in another scene. That's not the case with this. Annette Insdorf talks about this in one of the supplements. It stays on that scene. It stays on Julie's face. And we're right back looking at her face again. There's no natural explanation for this at all. It's very inexplicable, very mysterious. And then this is when a reporter shows up and she's asking um she's asking about the composition that Patrice was working on before he died she denies that it even exists the reporter says that Julie has changed that she wasn't so rude before and she asks if it's true that she wrote her husband's music so we so we come to find out that there's sort of this rumor that Julie actually writes Patrice's music And then we also get an indication of Julie's previous life, that perhaps losing Patrice and Anna has changed her, that it has made her harder, that it's changed her personality in some way. And I think we see this in the film. We see her trying to be hard and, I guess, strong in quotation marks. I mean, what is strength? What does it mean to be strong? I think I have a very different definition of it than some people. People talk about strong female characters and stuff like that. You know, when they talk about Wonder Woman and things like that. And I think I have a different idea of what strength is, probably because of my own experiences. And I've often wondered, am I strong? I don't feel strong. What does it mean to be strong? You know, and I don't think I want strong female characters. I don't think that interests me. I'm much more interested in female characters who, I guess, are like me. You know, who are struggling, who are broken, who are grieving and shattered. Although Julie, even though she's grieving, she is stronger than me. You know, she's able to cope. She's able to live. I'm not able to do that, really. But is she strong? Is it strong to try to erase memory? Is it strong to not feel? Is it strong to numb yourself? I don't know. Now, that's kind of what Julie's trying to do, is to pretend like that previous life never existed. And she finds out through the course of this film that she can't do that, that it did exist, and it is still with her. So eventually, Julie gets out of the hospital. She goes back to the house, and there is the blue room, and that's Anna's room. And everything has been discarded, almost. She gave orders that everything should be removed from that room and much of the house is emptied as well and I think this is an early indication that she's gonna try to (laughs) she's gonna try to erase it she's gonna try to pretend like it didn't happen and free herself the thing about freedom in this film and the way that it's exploring it 
I think I struggled with this at first because I was really new to art house cinema. You know, I don't think I understood everything when I was watching these films in 2011, 2012, when I was just in the beginning of watching films like this. It's not easy to watch a film like this. It's not easy to watch something like Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura. That's not an easy film. I have an episode about that film, by the way. Ingmar Bergman's films are not easy. You know, these are films that you have to bring something to it. Like, you're filling in the blanks. You have to deal with things that are mysterious and unanswered. And that's not always very satisfying for people. The film is looking at freedom. Like, what does it mean to be free? Can Julie free herself of the past? Can she free herself of grief? And if she does try to erase the past, is she really free? That's, I think, some of the questions the film's asking. Is it possible? And I think ultimately the answer in this film is that it's not possible. So everything's been taken out of her daughter's room except for a blue chandelier. A chandelier that has all these blue crystals on it. And that remains hanging from the wall. Julie's relationship with this chandelier, it's almost like um, a substitute for her daughter in a way. It's like a part of her daughter that's left. Because so much, so many other things of her daughter's has been discarded. And she ends up ripping some of the crystals off of the chandelier. And I guess she sort of keeps them with her or something. You know, I think about my own father's possessions how I don't really have that many of them. I actually went through a move in 2015. It was really abrupt and sudden because we went through like a financially difficult time. We just ended up losing our house and we almost were homeless at one time. It was not an easy experience. I talk more about that experience actually in my episode on House of Sand and Fog. It was really traumatic for me to lose my house because it was where I had lived since I was a child and where I lived with my father and where I had been for 26 years. It was very difficult and I still I still feel very scarred by it. We couldn't take a lot when we left our house so I didn't end up getting a lot of my dad's possessions. I had to leave a lot of them behind and I personally feel a lot of guilt about it to this day that I don't have a lot of his possessions. I obviously have pictures and I do have some of his clothes but I there's a lot of stuff I didn't get. And it's just something that still sort of torments me even now. To me, Julie, getting rid of all the possessions is very alien to me. Like, we held on to as much of my dad's stuff as we could. And, you know, when we had to get rid of things or when we had to leave things behind, it was really painful for me and it's still really painful for me. But I guess for her, this is, she wants to sever ties with the past because she can't live with the pain of it. She can't live with the pain of the loss, I think. But there are things that are still there to remind her of Anna and Patrice. Whether it's Patrice's score or Anna's chandelier, um, there are things that remind her of them and that remain. And then there's this powerful scene where Julie goes to see the maid and she asks why she's crying. The maid is Marie. And uh, Julie asks her why she's crying. And she says that she's crying because Julie isn't. Marie says that she remembers them and she can't forget. She can't forget Anna and Patrice. And it got me thinking about how really memory is what makes us sad. You know, if we didn't remember the dead, we wouldn't feel any pain about them. If, If Julie did not remember her child and her husband, then she would not feel any kind of pain. So memory is like this double edged sword in that way. We can't live with it, but we can't live without it. I've often thought about what if I could erase my memory and free myself from the past? 
Maybe I could be happier. I do sometimes wish that. I just wish I could erase all of it. I wish I could erase him. I wish I could erase all the loss, everything that happened to me, so that I would not have to bear it anymore, so that I wouldn't have to bear the unbearable anymore. You know, it would be a clean slate. It's so alluring. It's so tantalizing to think about that. And I think that Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind sort of explores that concept. Now, I saw that film so many years ago. It was probably over a decade ago that I saw that film. I don't even know what I thought about it. I don't think I disliked it, but I don't remember feeling any like really deep emotional experience with that film. And I wonder now if I would if I would feel differently about it. I don't know. But it kind of looks at that, like erasing your memory. So to me, it's very tantalizing. I mean, not that it's possible, but I sometimes wish it was. But you know, I'd have to give up the beauty I've known too. I'd have to give up the beautiful memories. The time that I spent with my dad and all of that. The love that we had for each other. The love that he gave to me. You know, would I even be myself without my memories and without my grief? This is what has made me who I am, those memories. And my grief makes me who I am too. It's a huge part of me. And if I erased those things, who would I be? I don't know. And I don't have an answer to that. But I do sometimes feel like, God, if I could just erase my memories, I would be free. But would I be free? I don't know. I don't have an answer. In Juliette Binoche's scene commentary for the Criterion DVD, she mentions uh, the passion of Joan of Arc at one time. And I thought this was interesting because there are lots of close-ups in the film. And some of them are very, like, anguished. You know, there's a pain about them. And the passion of Joan of Arc you know, think of Falconetti, Renee Falconetti's face. She is like the symbol of of suffering in a way. And I think that's why that film resonates with me so much and why I love it so much. I think the close-ups in this film are really important, just like they were in The Passion of Joan of Arc, because they convey the emotional life of a woman, you know, her internal anguish and turmoil and pain. And later on, we'll see Julie holding the crystals from that chandelier in her hand. And it's like, a remnant of her daughter. It's one of the few things that she has left of her daughters. And even though I don't have a lot of my dad's possessions, I do have a few of them and they're very meaningful to me. Like I have some of his clothes, I have his wallet, I have some bottles of his cologne, you know, and they're just very powerful. They're like these very powerful relics and almost like holy I could never let them go and I hope that I never lose them or anything. I definitely have to hold on to them. I actually don't see Julie as cold and unfeeling in this film and I think that's maybe something that other people have commented on. When I was doing my research, I don't think she's cold at all. I mean, I don't know if that's the general consensus, but I think she's like barely containing her emotions most of the time. And I feel like the film captures those moments of her inner anguish. You know, it's all over Benosha's face. She communicates everything with her eyes and her body. I do want to linger a little while on one particular scene and that's the lollipop scene because I just think it's it's incredibly powerful. So Julie's going through her pocketbook and she comes across the blue lollipop that was for Anna. And as I said earlier, when we see that blue foil in the opening scene of the film, that is from Anna's lollipop. And so now Julie is holding one of the lollipops that 
would have been Anna's. You can tell that she's so overcome just holding it. And she closes her eyes and you can just feel the pain shoot through her. And she begins to eat this lollipop violently. I can't even imagine doing this. And she she chews it with her teeth and you can hear the sound of the crunching. And it's incredibly unnerving. Is it communion or is it destruction? That's what I asked myself as I was watching this. Is this her trying to connect to her daughter in some way? Like eat the lollipop that Anna would have ate. She could have saved it as a reminder of Anna. You know, she could have saved this lollipop. It could have been something for her to hold on to. But Julie refuses to hold on to anything. You know, she's emptying the house. She's going to go live in a new apartment away from everybody that she knows. She's going to try to create a new life free of the past. So she can't hold on to anything in this film that belongs to them. She has to destroy or eat the thing that reminds her of Anna. And so I see like a profound violence about this scene. And that's what I think makes it so poignant and so moving is the violence of it, of how desperately she wants to destroy any kind of sign or memory of her daughter. But of course, in other ways, she holds on to Anna, like with the blue chandelier. That's why I think the blue chandelier is such an important aspect of the film. And I'll talk more about it later. And there's an interesting story about this lollipop scene. And Kishlovsky talks about it in an interview. He says that they ordered only 15 of these lollipops. Juliet ate a few in rehearsals. And then they did the scene a few times and they didn't like it. He said, quote, We made a few trials and we were still not happy with the way she was unwrapping that lollipop, how she was reacting to it, until it turned out that there was only one left, the last chance to shoot. We put that lollipop in her handbag. We covered it with notebooks, puff boxes, lipsticks, all those odds and ends that women have in their handbags. We set up the camera. She emptied out the contents. The lollipop fell out. She takes it into her hand and sees it is broken. Juliette Binoche then did this kind of a gesture. With a sigh, she pulled her head back. It was the completely private gesture of an actress who had noticed that she had no prop anymore. But in that several second part of a take, we found everything that we wanted to achieve, unquote. So this scene really happens by happenstance in a way that there's one lollipop left and she has to do the scene. I think it shows you obviously the the masterful talent of Juliette Binoche. Like I said earlier, I don't think this is a cold performance by her at all. I think this is actually a deeply devastating, deeply emotional performance by her. And everything that she is conveying, she is doing so through her facial movements, her eyes, the looks that she gives, the way that she, the way that she eats a lollipop, right? You know, she's not crying every minute of the film, but she's ripping crystals off a chandelier. She's violently eating a lollipop. She's burying her face in in the water when she's in the pool. So it's this very like physical acting. She has to convey the grief not through tears. It would almost be too easy to convey it through tears. She has to convey it through actions and that makes it even more powerful, I think. She calls uh, Olivier for the first time and asks him if he loves her, and he does. And she tells him to come over, and they end up having sex. But she does not want to have a relationship with Olivier. She tells him, like, the next morning that he won't miss her. She doesn't want any attachments. It was just sex and nothing more than that. 
She doesn't want any relationships. She doesn't want anything. She has to disconnect from people. She has to cut herself off from people. She's very alone in this film. She is never with other people for that long. She talks to Olivier briefly. She visits her mom briefly. She has sort of these shallow interactions with people. She doesn't have like somebody where she sits and pours her heart out to them, right? She's trying to keep it all inside and keep it together. And she's barely able to do that. And like I said, it comes out through like violence. That's what's just occurring to me is the violence in the film and the way that is the the vehicle through which she expresses her emotion. Like think about her jerking the, the jewels off that chandelier. That's violent. Eating the lollipop is violent. And then the scene where she's walking outside and she runs her knuckles across a stone wall. That's an act of violence towards her own body. It's like that's... that's the only way she can express any kind of emotion or express her grief is like through anger, you know, through angry actions. And actually, I have a little bit of a story to tell you about that scene with the stone wall. Um, There was supposed to be a protective glove that was going to be made for Benoche's hand, but the scene came up and it wasn't ready yet. And so Benoche said that she would do it without it. And Kishlovsky got furious because he did not want her to sacrifice her body for the film or to sacrifice her health. And I tell you, that... That was so refreshing to hear, and I think that says a lot about Kishlovsky. You know, he did not think that actors should put themselves in danger to do a film, and it's so different from how a lot of actors are today, where they think that you should sacrifice everything. And so I really love that he cared about Juliette Binoche and cared about her safety and didn't want her to do it. But she did end up doing the scene without the glove. She had to. It wasn't ready yet and they needed to shoot it. She said that she had scars for a year after that. It looks really painful. So she ends up moving to this apartment and she specifically asks the real estate agent. She does not want an apartment that has children in it. She wants to stay away from children. She does not have a job. That comes up when she's uh, buying the apartment. Apparently she probably, I guess, gets good money from uh, Patrice dying. I don't know. Maybe the life insurance or maybe he had a lot of money that she ended up inheriting. You know, she's not a woman that has to have a job or has to be out working. So that allows the film to be even more emotional. It, the film doesn't really have to interact with reality or everyday life or like the tedium of everyday life, right? Of her going to a job. It can just focus on life and focus on her life. And that's probably another way that it is not a political film. You know, Kishlovsky had done politics. He had done documentaries early in his career. His Polish films were more political. And I think maybe with these films in the 90s, he did want to go away from that, it seems like. And he wanted to enter the realm of the personal, the mysterious, the emotional. I think that was more interesting to him. And we also learned that she's gone back to her maiden name. So I think that's another example of how she's trying to strip the past away. She's even stripped his name away so that she won't have a reminder of Patrice. But even though she's trying to let everything go, when she moves into that apartment, she takes the chandelier. She takes the blue chandelier and hangs it up. 
So she can't leave everything behind because that's still a reminder of Anna. And there are times when she just looks at it so longingly as though it holds some kind of essence of Anna in its crystals. It's very moving, as though it were a substitute for Anna, as I said earlier. It's a remnant. It's all that she has left. And she even touches the crystals. And it reminded me of the way that she touched the television screen when she saw Anna's coffin. The way her finger went right to Anna's coffin on that little television screen in her bed. And she touches the crystals sort of in a similar way. These objects sometimes can have immense power and they can evoke so many things for us, especially when it comes to the dead. They're almost like these ghostly stand-ins in a way. And there's this point at which she's in front of the crystals and she's touching them and then she balls up her fist and it's bloody because of her running it across the stone and you can just feel all the emotions teeming in her that she can barely contain and I tell you I feel like that so much of the time I feel like this person that is just overwhelmed with so much like there's so much inside me and it's just bursting you know and it's too much I feel like I just feel too much and I don't know what to do with all of it I see that in Julie You know, I see this woman like barely able to contain what is inside of her and she's trying desperately to not feel it. You know, if I just get this apartment, if I get rid of my married name, you know, if I get rid of all these possessions that belong to these people, then I can live. I can survive this kind of pain. And I think it makes sense. I think it makes sense that you want to run from it, you know, that you want a a distraction. You want to escape it and pretend like it never happened, but you can't. You know, I think that's what this film is about is that you can't do that. And we do briefly see her at the pool. There's more scenes in the water later, but the first time we see her in the pool, it's very beautiful. It's very interesting that Kishlovsky actually wanted to make her a jogger instead of a swimmer. But the cinematographer on the film, he felt that there was actually more possibility with swimming. And I'm so glad he made that decision because I think it's true. If you did not have the pull, if you did not have the water, I don't know if there would be the same emotional resonance in this film. There's something incredibly powerful about bodies of water, I think. And her being a jogger just would have been so boring. I don't know what you could have done with that. Whereas with water, I think you can do so much more. There's another scene in this film where Julie's sitting on the stairs outside her apartment. She gets locked out and she can see two of the neighbors who are possibly having an affair downstairs. But when she's on the stairs, there is this blue light that appears again and the music plays. And it was during this scene that I started to wonder if the music that we're hearing is actually in her head, like she's composing the music or thinking about the music. And I wonder if that could be a reason why it just randomly occurs suddenly and it's attached to the color blue. Like usually her face is like bathed in blue or there's some kind of blue light and then this music plays. And I got to thinking that I wonder if it's we're hearing inside her head that she's thinking about the music that she wants to compose or or something like that. So that could be one reason why we do hear it. 
And then, of course, there's this really famous scene after this where she's sitting on a bench outside and she's really basking in the sun. She has her eyes closed and there's this elderly lady that's really stooped over walking and she puts um, a glass bottle in the recycle bin or the trash bin. And that's something that recurs a lot. It recurs throughout the trilogy of this old woman putting this glass bottle in this bin. It's always, I don't, is it the same woman? I guess it's the same woman. I can't remember. So it's something that sort of ties the trilogy together and it's something that recurs throughout all three of the films. Julie meets the young man who witnessed the crash. His name is Antoine. They meet at a cafe. He ended up finding a cross necklace near the site, but Julie decides that she doesn't want to take it. She actually lets Antoine keep it. I think it's sort of another example of her trying to cut ties with the past. And it's in this scene that we also, again, hear the music play and then the screen fades to black and then it comes back in the same exact scene. Like that happens several times throughout the film. And then there's this powerful scene where Julie is in the pool and this is just one of the most powerful scenes of the film. Anytime she's in the water, it's incredibly evocative for me. And she's about to get out of the pool and, you know, she pushes herself up to get out. And then the music plays suddenly as it has throughout the film. And it's almost like she remembers something. It's like this moment where the past and the pain seems to intrude on her. And she slides back down into the water all the way under. And she just floats there with her head in her hands under the surface. Like maybe a memory hit her or just something hit her. Something crashed into her in like one second. And I felt that so many times where I'll be doing something and, you know, I'll think of the past. I'll think of something, some kind of memory or something I had forgotten or something I hadn't thought about in a long time. It can be anything. I just crumple. I just crumple. And I love the water in this film because... You know, I love these pool scenes because I love the sensuality of water. And for me, water has always been like a home to me. I used to love swimming like in a pool. I've never been in the ocean or anything like that. I've only been to the beach like once. We didn't go on a lot of vacations or anything when I was younger. You know, we still don't have money for stuff like that. Pools have always been like a second home to me, but I haven't been in a pool in like years. It's been quite a few years since I've swam in a pool because I have health issues that just make it difficult for me to do that. And there's not one nearby. You know, I don't have one near me or anything like that. But even if I did, I I wouldn't physically be able to do it. But some of my best memories are of swimming. Like my mom and dad used to call me like a mermaid. I used to love bath time. I used to love being in a bathtub. I just loved swimming. Any chance I got, I absolutely loved it. For me, few things really touch the perfection of this scene itself. When she is just floating in the water with her head in her hands, it's incredibly haunting and There is such an emotional devastation about it. She's floating in like this luminous blueness. Putting her head under the surface, she's like literally breathless. She's holding her breath. So the moment itself is like literally breathtaking. She's overwhelmed by the grief so much that she has to remove herself from the world and goes into the water 
as maybe like an escape, that she can't even stand to have her head above the water and to breathe in the air and to be in the world and in life, that she has to go under the water, under the surface, into like this aquatic, almost like womb-like world. Because if you think about it, when your head's underwater, you can't really hear anything. It's like completely silent, except for like your breathing usually. And it is like you're in the world, but you're not because you're in the water and you're holding your breath. And I don't know, I don't know how to describe it properly, but it's like she feels so much pain in that moment that she has to go into the water. That's the only place that, that she can go. It's the only comfort and the only escape that she can find. When she is in this apartment and in this new life, she does not tell anybody about her previous life. She actually has a neighbor that asks her about the crystal chandelier, and she says that she just found it. She doesn't go into, oh, you know, it belonged to my daughter. She doesn't want to go into any of that. And I want to talk about the scene where Julie's in the cafe, and at first you see her face reflected in a spoon. And then you see the sugar cube. I have to talk about the sugar cube scene and I will in a minute. But Olivier shows up at that cafe and we also hear this man outside. He's a big part of the film too. He has this recorder. I don't know what you call it. If it's a flute, it looked like a recorder to me. And he's outside the cafe and he ends up playing a melody that's similar to the composition that Patrice was working on before he died. And the only people who have seen that composition are Julie and maybe Olivier or something. There's no reason for this random man to know that melody. And I do have a little story to tell because when I was in fifth grade, we actually learned to play the recorder. So... (laughs) So when I saw this scene, I immediately was transported back to fifth grade when we were learning different songs on the recorder. Like, it's just so random. Anytime I hear that that sound, I think of that, like when I was in fifth grade. And I don't think I was very good at it. I've never been very musically inclined, even though I was in band for a few years in middle school. I wasn't very good at it. (laughs) So every time I hear that recorder, I think of fifth grade. But this sugar cube scene, she puts the sugar cube in coffee and the sugar cube sucks the coffee up and then she drops it in. And it's so amazing to watch. Kishlovsky talks about this scene in a cinema lesson that's part of the Criterion DVD. And he says, quote, why the obsession with close-ups in this film? It's simply that we're trying to show the character's world from her point of view, emphasizing how she focuses on these little things around her by focusing on them ourselves to demonstrate that nothing else matters to her, that she's trying to confine her world to just herself and her immediate environment, unquote. So that's the point of the sugar cube is he's saying that it's this little detail that he focuses on because it's something that she would focus on, that she would look at the sugar cube and the coffee, right? And that's something that she would notice. So it takes you deeper into her world, those little details throughout the film. And I agree. And he was very thoughtful about this sugar cube. He said it had to take five seconds 
for the sugar cube to soak up the coffee. No more and no less. He said a regular sugar cube takes around eight seconds, so it had to be the perfect sugar cube. And his assistant actually spent half a day testing out different sugar cubes and finding the perfect one for that scene. I love that. I just think that's so fascinating and you understand the work that goes into making a film and the thought that goes into it that everything that you see on screen for the most part has been perfectly mapped out and has been chosen for a reason and so also the the man outside on the recorder playing that melody this was very important to Kishlovsky and he talked about why he included that in the film and I love this quote I think it gets to the heart of some of his cinema really he says quote this theme is almost an obsession of mine that people in different places and for different reasons think of the same thing I said I tried to talk about things that connect people I think this feeling this music all these notes already exist scattered somewhere waiting for the person who will put them in order. The fact that two different people at different times in different places from different social strata can put these notes together in the same way seems to me a sign of what connects people, unquote. And I love that, and I think it's true. And I've thought about that so many times, how there are people all across the world who speak different languages but connect to some of the same things. Or if you think about the podcast, this podcast itself, I have people from all over the world that listen to it. I have people in Tokyo. I have people in Australia. I have people in Canada, in even Russia. I think I've had a few downloads in Russia, all over the place all over the world and it's like these are people who are in different cultures from me they speak different languages although obviously they know English in order for them to listen you know here I am in like the rural south in the United States um (laughs) with my life my little life um but I am saying things that people from other places around the world may connect to And who may, you know, I may say something and they think, wow, I feel the same way. We're from completely different places. Like we're very different people, right? And I think that's amazing. And I kind of think that that's what art is about to some extent. It's about expressing things that other people connect to. You think about Virginia Woolf or Fernando Pessoa and how they wrote things decades ago, sometimes a century ago, that people now, all those decades later, and in different languages, different countries, feel deeply inside themselves. Or you think of a film made years and years and years ago and people still watch it today and totally understand the feelings and the emotions in it and feel moved by it. I mean, Three Colors Blue is almost 30 years old and yet it speaks to me. It was made when I was a child and yet here is this work of art that I think expresses something really profound about the human condition by a man who was Polish and it's done in French and you know we're completely different people we're from different countries and backgrounds and cultures and and this one film you know I feel so deeply connected to 
So we come from different places, but we can have similar feelings or similar thoughts. And I find that endlessly fascinating. And maybe that's why Kishlovsky is my favorite director is because he is exploring that and he is exploring the connections between people in that way. And the sugar cube scene also, it made me think about the magic that Kishlovsky has brought into my life from day one, from the first time I watched The Double Life of Veronique. You know, how through his films I saw things that I had never seen before in movies. I still remember my delight and my enchantment at the marionette scene in The Double Life of Veronique. I had never seen anything like it before. And this sugar cube scene has stayed with me all this time, all these years later it's probably one of my favorite moments in the film because I was astonished when I saw it I was like oh, I think I gasped I was like oh the sugar cube soaking up the coffee it's such a small but just beautiful detail I couldn't get over over it like I just couldn't and so for me with Kishlovsky nothing compares to to his art the details the colors the filters the beauty I think, in his greatest film, in his greatest films. Julie ends up visiting her mother who has dementia. And this is an important part of the film, I think. At first, the mother thinks that Julie is actually her sister instead of her daughter. And the mother's played by Emmanuel Riva, who was in Hiroshima Mon Amour, which is a really powerful film about memory in particular. So for her to play this role is actually really poignant. The mother doesn't remember Patrice and doesn't remember Anna. And she just sits and watches television all day. She sits in front of her TV and that's how she interacts with the world. She says that the TV shows the world to her. And when Julie goes to visit her, she's actually watching uh, this thing, watching people bungee jumping. It's some kind of television show about bungee jumping. And Julie says to her mother, quote, you know, I was happy before. I loved them and they loved me. Unquote. And as she's saying this, we see this bungee jumping footage. And I don't know what y'all remember about the 90s, but bungee jumping was big in the 90s. It was a thing. I don't know if bungee jumping is a thing now. Do people still bungee jump? I don't know. I don't see it a lot. I, I personally, I don't see it like on shows or in films, but in the 90s, bungee jumping was the thing. Uh -huh. This scene of the bungee jumping one of the images of somebody bungee jumping is actually the cover for the Criterion edition of the film. And I have to say this always puzzled me greatly because Three Colors Red has the main character on it and so does uh, Three Colors White, but then Three Colors Blue didn't have Julie on it. And I was always wondering like, why the bungee jumping? I, I, I didn't understand it. But I got to thinking while this scene was happening that I wonder if um, this film in this scene in particular has a certain resonance, resonance with the film and the way that it's looking at memory and the past. Because this is an important scene. This is when Julie says, quote, I want no possessions, no memories, no friends, no lovers. They're all traps, unquote. And that's a pretty famous scene from the film. So it's a scene of conflict in a way. Julie says that she does not want any memories anymore. And yet here she is talking to her mother who is losing her memory. And 
But I think Julie has to learn for herself in the course of the film that losing your memory is not what frees you. Losing memories does not lead to liberation because her mother's losing hers and she's not free. If anything, she's even more imprisoned and she's chained almost to that television because she has no memories anymore. So it's almost like the television is like a box of memories because she doesn't have her own life to think about or to remember. So she has to watch life on this box. She has to watch life on television because she doesn't have any for herself anymore. And I got to thinking about the bungee jumping and I got to thinking about the bungee cord itself and how we are tied to things like the past, our memories, other people, in much the same way that the people's bodies are attached to the bungee cord. And without that cord, those bungee jumpers would die. They would hit the ground and nothing would stop them. So the bungee cord, the cord is life itself, right? The cord is what keeps them alive. Without a connection to the past and to memory, you die. You are dead. You are a dead thing. You can't live the way that Julie tries to live with no connections because the connection itself is life and it's what saves us just as the bungee cord saves those who are bungee jumping. So I guess I'm trying to say that memory and the past and our connections, that's the cord that connects us to life. And that's the way I interpret it. And maybe that's why they put that as the cover. I don't know. But the cover itself made me think more deeply about the scene. And I think that's the meaning that it has for me is that while, yeah, I would love to erase all those memories of my father, those memories keep me connected to him. It's a cord. It's a thread that runs from me to him. And, um, you know, maybe when I poured those pills out into my hand, maybe that's what kept me alive too, was that I have to live not just for my mother, which is, that's a good reason to live and an important reason to live. But I have to live so that I don't forget him, that I can remember him and carry on my memories of him. Maybe that's why I didn't swallow those pills too. Something keeps me connected to life and it's those memories and it is that past that we had together and that life that we lived. And there's another powerful scene of Julie in a pool. She's about to get out of it or something like that or she's in the pool. I don't think she's trying to get out of it. She's just in it. And all of a sudden, all these children show up. There's some little girls and they all start to jump into the pool that she's in. And you can tell that she just freezes in that moment when she sees all these children. Just the pain that she feels of being around them, especially little girls who probably remind her of Anna. Again, we don't even need to see her crying. Tears would be too simple. They would be too easy. Instead, I feel like Kishlovsky is illustrating the grief, right? It's so much... I think tears would tell and instead he's showing. We don't need to see her crying. We see everything in that scene. That here are these little girls and her little girl is dead. And her body just is frozen. Frozen in pain. It's incredibly just devastating to see it and to think about it. And I remember actually the months after my father's death when I had to go back to school. Sometimes I remember being in class and sometimes I would overhear people in class talking about their fathers. You know, of course they didn't know I had lost mine and that's not on them. I'm not going to police 
you know, how other people live or what they talk about. Other people have the right to talk about their fathers, you know, but I would just overhear them sometimes. And I would, usually I would hear them complaining about their dads, (laughs) you know, whatever teens say about their fathers. Um, and it just hurt terribly, terribly. It hurt to hear them complain about their fathers. My grief was still so fresh and I felt resentful towards my classmates. I will be honest, I felt bitterness and anger that they had their fathers and I didn't have mine. And I think that's a very human emotion. I think that's a very understandable thing. I was very mad about it personally. I didn't talk to anyone about it, but you know, here here I am and I would give anything to have my dad back. And I heard them complaining about their fathers and it just hurt me. Like, you know, I wanted to tell them, you know, be grateful that you have a father, but that's not my place. And it's normal. It's normal to complain about your parents, right? Like I would never say anything, but in my state at that time, it just hurt. It hurt so deeply. And I just kept hoping that he would come back, you know, that he would be at school and he would pick me up like he used to from school and of course that never happened but I did want to share about the pool scenes I forgot to mention it um, earlier when I was talking about the pool like water was always a second home to me as I said I love to swim and after my father died my mom and I um we went to stay at this uh, motel that had a pool. Sometimes that's what we would do because we didn't have a lot of money. You know, even when my dad was alive, we couldn't really go on vacations a lot. I went maybe to a few places. Like I remember going to a water park one year and we did that. But we, you know, it's not like we took week long vacations to places out of state or anything like that. And I only went to the beach like once. But sometimes what we would do is we would like rent rent a room at a hotel or motel for like a few days, like maybe a weekend. And then we would swim in the pool. And that's just something that we would do in the summer every now and then so that we could swim. After my father died, I don't know if it was that year, 2006, or if it was the next one. I'm not totally sure. I have a journal. I have a diary from that time. I'd have to look at it to see the dates. But I remember my mom and I, just the two of us going to a local hotel so that we could use the pool. I just still remember swimming in that pool. Like my mom loved to tan. So she would be sitting on like one of those things that you lay out on. So she wasn't in the pool a lot, but I was in the pool all the time. And I remember her laying out in the sun and I was in the pool and I used to buy goggles so that I I could dive down at the deep end. And then I I would dive down to the bottom of the pool and I would try to stay down there as long as I could. And I would look up at the surface of the pool and I would watch the light coming through the surface And there's just nothing like it in the world to be like in the quiet and the stillness at the bottom of the pool and to look up and to see the sun through the water. I still remember that experience of being in the water because it was like the closest, closest to peace that I think I've ever gotten because water is peace to me. It is a place of peace and it felt so beautiful to be in that water and to just, to just swim to just be in it. I, I can't explain it. The the peace it gave me. And I don't believe in healing. 
I never have. I never will. I don't feel like I'll ever heal from his death. But some of the closest experiences that I've ever felt to healing were in the water and when I'm watching films. That's the closest I come, especially in the the years after his death when I saw more films in theaters. You know, when I was able to sit in a darkened theater and watch a great film or something and that felt close to healing and then when I was in the water that felt really close to healing too it felt just so beautiful and I wish that I could go back and feel that again and just be in the water and feel that peace you know I feel like that is just gone from my life I don't have access to that anymore and I miss it terribly. I just miss being in a pool. I miss being able to do that because it was just so beautiful. So when I saw Julie in the water, it reminded me of that experience as well. So Julie finds out eventually that Patrice was cheating on her with another woman. Patrice had this mistress for several for several years. Julie ends up tracking her down and going to see her and talking to her. This mistress works at a courthouse. She's like an intern for a lawyer. When Julie goes there to find her, we actually see a scene that we're going to see in Three Colors White, which is the film after Blue. And it has the character Carol Carol it is and he's at the courthouse so it's like a little bit of a a connection between those two films and then in red all three films you'll see the connections I won't give it away (laughs) but they're all connected in some way so it's so neat that he includes like a little scene from white because I think it's just a reminder to us how lives can cross one another and people can be subtly connected that you know here is Julie's narrative and Carol's sort of intersects with hers or collides with hers a little bit Julie does confront the mistress and she finds out that she's pregnant and that the baby belongs to Patrice and the mistress is going to keep the baby. And this is really a piece of Patrice that will live on now. And it's one of the only pieces of him because Anna is gone. And so this child is like a connection to Patrice. But of course it belongs to the mistress. And I used to think that this part of the narrative was kind of soapy. And I remember when I watched it like in 2012, I don't I don't think I liked the pregnant mistress. It felt like something that would happen on a daytime soap. It felt just too, like, why is this in here? I don't think I understood it in like back then. Like, why is this included? But I see now that it does make sense. Julie knows that he loved this woman. And she also has to accept a different version of him than the one that she thought she knew. She can't make him into a saint. She can't make the dead into saints. And she has to confront the hard truth about Patrice and about their relationship. And so I think it just adds like another layer to the narrative in that way. That it would be really easy to make Patrice into this perfect husband. But by making him flawed and by making him a cheater, it complicates our feelings, I think, for Patrice. And I think it probably complicates Julie's feelings for him, too. In the end, Julie decides to give the house to Patrice's mistress. She believes that the child, and we find out that it's a boy, she believes that the child should have Patrice's name and his home. She's doing this very generous thing, but in the scene, she's not very happy about it. There's a tension in the scene and also a hardness to Julie, I think. I think there's still an edge to her 
because she's just found out that he cheated. She doesn't like being put in this position where she has to do the right and moral thing for the single mother. Like she feels, I guess, forced into it maybe. Maybe this is something that she wishes that she didn't have to deal with, even though she knows it's the right thing to give her the house. And Juliette Binoche in an interview said that she wanted to play the scene hard. Um, she wanted to play the scene in a in like a happier way or like a maybe a more warm and generous way. But Kosofsky wouldn't let her. He said that he wanted it to be like a harder scene. I think that she wants to do the right thing, but she she still doesn't like the situation, right? She still doesn't like having to do it or being involved in it. And also throughout the film, Julie's been working on Olivier's composition. At first she destroyed it, but where the composition was being stored, one of the women that worked there made a copy of it. So she's been working on it and I think Olivier's been working on it as well. So they've been working on this concerto together throughout the film. It's probably something that connects them and it also keeps her connected to Patrice to continue his work. Although there are questions, did she write his material the whole time or what that's never answered really but we do know that Julie is able to write these compositions and is actually really great at it but I think maybe doing the the concerto together probably brings her and Olivier a bit closer and she ends up finding out that Olivier still sleeps in the bed where he and Julie first had sex So she calls Olivier one night and asks if he loves her and he still does. And she says that she's going to come over to see him. And this is an interesting scene. She's looking at the composition and the chorus starts to play. She's alone and the camera pans up and we see the blue crystals of the chandelier and they're blurred over Julie's face. And as she leaves to go and see Olivier, we see even more of these blue crystals in the picture. And it's hard not to think of the blue crystals as almost like Anna, as almost like Anna looking over her or something. That's like the feeling I had about these blue crystals for some reason, the chandelier, but that's what it feels like. (laughs) Like, um, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that in this scene, we can see those crystals. I don't know. And then we see Julie with Olivier. And this is probably one of the most mysterious scenes of the film and one of the most mysterious scenes that I've ever witnessed myself. And they're making love, but it looks like they're in a tank, like a water tank. Julie's face is pressed against the glass. It looks aquatic almost. I don't understand it at all. And I chose not to read a lot of interpretations of the film because I don't like for my own thoughts to be tainted by other people's. When I'm doing an episode, I want to make sure that I'm sharing my own thoughts. I still don't understand the scene. Why would they be in a tank? Why would they be in a water tank? There's nothing to indicate that they should be in a water tank. It's very mysterious. It's a haunting scene. It's another one of those scenes from the film that stays with you. But it's so mysterious. I wonder if it's connected to Julie being in the pool and swimming. Now the water is gone. It looks like she's in this empty tank with Olivier. What does it mean? I I wish I had an answer for you. I don't have any particular profound interpretation of this scene. All I can say is that it's mysterious and I don't know what to make of it at all. The chorus of the concerto plays during this scene and we hear, if I have not love, I am nothing. And it is from the Bible. 
According to the book The Cinema of Krzysztof Kieślowski, Variations on Destiny and Chance, this is St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And it stresses, quote, the absolute love of God and the necessity for a human being to reciprocate that love. And they share a quote from the Bible verse. And this is also what plays in the concerto. So, quote, Though I speak with the tongue of angels, if I have no love, I am become as hollow brass. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have enough faith to move the mightiest of mountains, if I have not love, I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It bears all things. It hopes all things. Love never fails. For prophecies shall fail. Tongues shall cease. Knowledge will wither away, and now shall abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Unquote. During an interview, and this is part of a book of interviews with Kishlovsky, again, it will be in the show notes. He was doing this interview um, that was conducted with an audience in 1996, and so someone from the audience asked him, quote, don't you think that ending blue with him to love is too literal? And Kishlovsky replied, quote, note that this hymn came into being 2,000 years ago. It is the only part of the the Bible that contains no mention of God or religion, only love. I would probably still today insist on this hymn to love. I think it is something quite incredible, and it testifies very clearly to our human condition. This faith in, need for, and necessity of love as a propelling motor of our life. And if someone could formulate it 2,000 years ago, and today we also relate to it, and we say that love is also most important to us, so I think I would still insist on it, just because it has held for so long. If it were Shakespeare, maybe I would hesitate. But because it is one of the oldest sources in existence, I think it says an awful lot about us. We haven't changed at all. Of course, we have cameras, computers. While they had none, they couldn't even write. However, love was most important to them, just like it is for us, unquote. So this is a film that starts with death, goes to sort of a violent amnesia, a violent attempt at amnesia of a woman trying to sever ties with the past, with the people she loved, with any kind of connection, but it ends with her returning to the things that she had tried to discard, that she realizes that she cannot sever ties with everything, that she can't avoid connection. This is really a woman returning to love. And I think there's something poetic about that. Then we see all the different people that Julie has met throughout the film. Antoine, her mother, a neighbor that was in the film, the mistress getting an ultrasound and the baby. Then we see Julie's nude back reflected in Olivier's iris. Obviously, this circles back to the doctor when he was reflected in Julie's iris when he came to tell her that her family had died. And this really seems like a deliberate connection to that scene to me. Maybe an indication that Julie will survive this. And then we see Julie's face and she's crying, really crying. We have not seen her cry much throughout this film, not with tears, but she has tears streaming down her face. It's a catharsis, I think, in a lot of ways. It's an emotional catharsis, and she is confronting this. 
confronting the grief. She's no longer running away from it or trying to disconnect herself with the past or erase the memories of the people that she loved because she can't. You can't. Not really. It ends with her just sitting there crying. She even has a little bit of a smile. And Juliette Binoche talked about how she kind of um, snuck that in. That you see, you see the edges of her mouth curl up just a little bit to get a smile in there. And I think it is a hopeful ending. As I said, this is a film that begins with death and really ends up ending with love. With the possibility of love. With the possibility of a new life that is not about erasing the life that came before it. And I find that that's what's so hard for me is like, how do you live in this life, the new life that comes, whether you want it or not, after loss, that you can no longer be the person that you were before the loss. You are a different person. And I've never been able to accept the life after loss, personally. It's like I've never been comfortable with it or at home in it or secure in it. It's like I always just keep thinking about the life that I should have or the life I could have had if my father were alive, if so much had not happened, if so much loss hadn't happened. You know, what could my life be like now? And so I can't actually live the life that I have because life without the person that you love is intolerable and unbearable. And it's like, what does it mean to be alive without him? What does it mean? Like, how do I accept it? And I've never been able to accept it. And because I can't accept it, I can't live it. I can't be fully alive. That's what I think I'm saying. I can't be fully alive in this life because I'm always thinking about the past. I'm always nostalgic. I'm always living in my memories, living in my mind, thinking about how things once were, comparing everything now to what they were before. And of course, they're always so much better before because my father was alive. And so I see for Julie, I see a different path for her, obviously, that she can have a life with with Olivier and she can live again and she can live with her memories. She can live with the memory of that other life. She doesn't have to erase the previous life in order to live in the now, to live in the present. I think that's something that's almost impossible for me to do, you know, is to live in the now and to let go. Can't let go of the past. I can't let go of it at all. And Annette Insdorf in a video essay for Criterion talks about the ending and she says, quote, Kishlovsky implies that true freedom is impossible or at least far from desirable. Human connection, for all its messiness, is more vital than solitude, unquote. So maybe the ending is also about a woman coming out of solitude, coming out of loneliness, and reconnecting with somebody else that for so long she did try to live alone. She did try to live without the past and without all that baggage. But when she opens herself up to Olivier, she opens herself up to the possibility of connection. And she breaks that loneliness. She breaks through that and connects to him. And I think why that's so hard is that connection is messy. Yes. It's also painful. Loving people brings 
pain because we can lose what we love at any moment. And that's what I learned, that I could lose the person that I love most in the world. And that is possible. That can happen at any time. And so I think that's why connection can be so scary and love can be so scary is the possibility of loss. You know, sometimes I I feel this pain because of the love that I feel for my mom. Like it physically hurts me because I'm terrified of losing her. I mean, my life is so dependent on her and connected and entwined with her life. And I'm really just scared of that loss and how it could like kill me. Like I feel like it could kill me. I don't think I could survive it. I survived my father's death, but only because I had my mother. And I I do think that it could kill me. I'm not exaggerating. And I often still wonder how I am alive without my father and how I survived it. Of course, the only answer is my mother. That is how I did. That is all I had. And she's all I have now. And it's terrifying to love somebody that much. It really is. I wonder if Julie's liberation is obviously not from memory or from the past or from those she's lost. But perhaps her liberation is from grief. Maybe. Or maybe she's not liberated from grief. I mean, the fact that she's crying seems to indicate that maybe she thought she could liberate herself from grief. Maybe she thought she could avoid it, you know, and not go through the mourning process or the grieving process. But really, true freedom comes from accepting grief, of saying, I have to grieve. It's okay to grieve. I have to cry. I have to feel this. That it's not freedom to not feel. Numbness is not freedom. Emotion and vulnerability and connection, that is true freedom. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I don't have some kind of big profound summation of this film or anything like that. I do feel like this is like a soul film. It's like you either feel it or you don't. (laughs) You either get it or you don't. I get it, obviously, and it is part of me in so many ways. And I did finish this film on Father's Day. I didn't plan on that, but that's just how it happened. And after it ended, I just cried and cried, like, so intensely. This was my 14th Father's Day without him and the 13th year since he died. It's been a hard time. I've just felt so disconnected from myself lately. I haven't even felt like myself in so many ways. But watching this film was an intense emotional experience and I think the message really is that maybe we're never truly free, right? That there is this cord that connects us to other people, that connects us to the past, that connects us to our memories. And we cannot ever be free of those things. And if we think that we can be, we're just delusional. No freedom or liberation comes from disconnecting those cords. But even though we can't be free of them, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily imprisoned by them either. These are the things that make us who we are, that give our lives meaning, that make us human, that give us something to live for. So maybe there never is any true freedom. We love people and we can lose them and we will lose them, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth loving them. And I think the concerto says it all that love is the answer. Love is worth it. That even though it brings pain and sorrow and you end up possibly losing the people that you love, you still have to love anyways. And I think that is the answer for Kishlovsky is love. I see this film as about a woman finding her way back to love. I know that sounds like a cheesy pop song, 
Um, There's probably a song called that, but it's kind of profound that here is what was in front of her the whole time. You know, the thing that she was trying to free herself from is the thing that she needs most. You know, she needs people. She needs her memories. She needs the past. She needs love and she needs connection. And those are not traps. They're not. They're what keep you from swallowing all those pills. And I think that's what kept her from swallowing all those pills. They are life. They are the things worth staying alive for. I truly believe that. This is just an emotionally devastating masterwork, I think. I can't say any more about it. I feel like I've said everything already and gone on way too long about it. But I really wanted to share all of my emotions and feelings and what this film means to me. We just, we didn't deserve Kishlovsky. He was just so amazing. And I love his work so deeply because of these kinds of experiences. And the way I think about this film and the way I feel it inside of me. And the way it lives inside of me and will always live inside of me. I'm so grateful to him for giving us works of art like this that we can connect to and think about and just everything. So thank you so much for listening to this. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.